Hello and thank you for joining us for episode 6 of Persians, the podcast. At the very heart of this play, we are faced with a choice. We've talked about how the play was sponsored by Pericles on his way to becoming a major figure in Athenian political history. Perhaps there was encouragement to glorify the city's victory and survival. It's also worth mentioning that the Athenians at Salamis were led by Themistocles, who Pericles may have been eager to support. Did Aeschylus get any encouragement to portray the Persians in a particular way? The play is mentioned as an example in Edward Said's landmark study, Orientalism. It's one of the earliest instances of a European writer inventing a representation of an Asian setting and Asian characters. As we will continue to see, many of the distinctive characteristics of Persian culture in the play are far more Greek than not Greek. As Professor Hall suggested a few nights ago, the play offers an opportunity for Greek audiences to revisit their own grief and sorrow through the lens of their Persian equivalents. But we really need to discuss the politics of this representation. Even if barbarian hadn't quite accrued a few thousand years of negative connotations, there are still plenty of hints about how the Athenians differentiate between Greek and Persian. Persians are lavishly dressed, baroque even, and effeminate. As mentioned last night, there's consistent reference to their new lack of men. They are literally unmanned. Much of this can be understood as a means of highlighting the positive qualities of the Greeks. Professor Edith Hall is the expert on this tension within the play. Her book, Inventing the Barbarian, is a terrific study of how the Greeks defined themselves through drama. I spoke with her about the word barbarian and how it's used in the play, and she gives a surprising but very effective comparison with another theatrical text. Well, it occurs, I think, ten times in this play, and when all the characters are actually not Greek, it's very unusual. Most Greek tragedy has encounters between different uh, people of different cities and people of different ethnicities. These are all Persian. It's at the Persian court with the Persian royal family, Persian messengers. That's it. And uh, yet they speak in Greek. It is a slightly coloured form of Greek. Aeschylus manages to give it a sort of uh, oriental tinge by various technical means, but they actually do refer to each other as we barbarians, which is uh, pretty uncomfortable if you're trying to actually put this play on now in, in any language. You've got to face how are you going to translate this word? Because originally the word barbarian in Greek really does just apply to language. It means people who sound as though they're going bar, 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 um, and we can't understand what they're saying. The people like the rhubarb, rhubarb. It doesn't, um, it only gradually, um, because of the Persian Wars, and because the barbarian, if you said the barbarian, ho, barbaros, you, you, the single barbarian, you always meant the great Persian king. You know, he was the consummate barbarian. So it was during the Persian Wars that all the other associations of the, the, the Persian monarchy uh, in the Greek imagination, it being despotic, um, being uh, very materialistic, uh, being very ornamental, being very ceremonial, very hierarchical, and indeed more moral qualities like 
very cruel and, and, and um, effeminate and cowardly, those sorts of stereotypes started to adhere to that term. So it's very peculiar indeed to uh, sit and, and contemplate what, what the Athenian audience sort of made of it. Maybe they didn't bat an eyelid. It was perfectly, you know, maybe, maybe they felt it was perfectly natural that these guys who were barbarians would call each other barbarians. We uh, know that the Persians didn't call themselves Barbarians. <laughs> they called them. They, they they called themselves all kinds of things: Achaemenids and, and and Persians, and Medes. They didn't call themselves barbarians. And I'm afraid this is where it reminds you more than anything of, of, of you know the Mikado. I, just, I, I mean, I'm really serious. This idea that you sort of have some names that sound vaguely um, Japanese, and you know a very small amount about Japanese culture and Japanese costumes and, and Japanese ceremonial titles. But you do it all in Victorian English. You know, that's the kind of, I'm afraid, register that I, I think we've got to get into. But it's obviously not meant to be funny all the way through. This Greek construction of what the Persian court was like was a dramatic invention. We don't know how much evidence Aeschylus might have had. They, they knew very, very little about what really went on uh, inside the Persian court. But, I mean, it was a secretive court. But very few people had actually ever visited it, certainly from Athens. I think actually Eastern Greeks who did live in those cities on the uh, what's now the Turkish western coast, they knew an awful lot more. Um, they must have done because they were living deep by jail with them. And there are some signs of real ethnographic sort of knowledge in the play. Um, the list of proper names, for example, which is so evocative, uh, right from the beginning, uh, these roll calls of the dead and in one of the messenger speeches creates, uh, you know, I think an awful lot of those names were real, but they knew who they'd killed. They knew the names of the commanders of the boats and so on. So I think that there's quite a lot of authentic colouring comes through with things like proper names. But fundamentally, the play is about defining Greek ideals about what it is to be a good Greek by portraying a kind of opposite. So the Greek ideal male is brave, intelligent, uh, self-disciplined, um, and abstemious. This is the ideal uh, ancient Greek for, for himself, and, and very masculine. So he creates a, a fantasy other in the Persians, which was cowardly, um, irrational, over-emotional, um, effeminate, um, very sort of unjust and cruel. I mean, we hear that Xerxes beheaded, made threats to behead all his lieutenants if they, they put a single foot wrong. Um, you know, no Athenian Democrat would, would take that from, you know, any kind of government that you have an arbitrary despot who just sent off with your heads. So the picture is very much built up to flatter the Greeks' own self-identity Academics and thinkers have, in recent years, been arguing about how to take this representation of the Persian other. Here's Professor Oliver Taplin with quite a balanced perspective. There is, you know, there has, in recent uh, criticism of the Persian, I mean, I'm talking about within the last 20 years, <clears throat> been a great split, really, between some scholars who say, this is a triumphalist play, this is the, this is the victor's um, humiliating the defeated and they're partly picking up on the idea of orientalism that somehow uh, this play was the the very first example of european uh 
denigration, disparagement of the East, um, because here are the Greeks showing the Persians to be uh, uh, useless and uh, weird and um, uh, uncivilized. That's the kind of triumphalist uh, interpretation, which is held by respectable scholars. And the, the other extreme, you get people who say, oh, no, this is the most amazing act of deep, humane empathy um, with the defeated. Um, now, I'm, I'm very much not in agreement with the first one. I, this play quite clearly seems to me isn't triumphalist. It's, a, it's, an, um, its power lies in imagining what it's like to be defeated. At the same time, the Persians are not represented as just like us, just like us, just like us Greeks. They're not represented as being free from fault. Um, their defeat is not represented as undeserved. Um, so it's not it's not a a, a purely um, a pure exercise in humane empathy either. But that that has been it's amazing how polarized those two views still are, uh, even even today. And for reference, it's worth hearing, too, from our Greek expert on the play, Lydia Konyordou. It's not nationalistic. It's, it's, it's part of the Greek identity through the times, through the ages. There is an element of the Greeks which you can call heroic, that they will not give up even if they die for it. And that explains of these un unexplainable otherwise results of marathon and of the, the uh, Salamis. It would have been very easy for Aeschylus to write a big ebullient play about how weak and ridiculous the defeated Persians must be, but he doesn't do that. Even amid the various negative qualities that Edith listed, they remain articulate. They are certainly not stupid, and they do gain our sympathy. Surprisingly, he makes us listen to the list of the Persians who died at Salamis, as the audience can see it in the distance. Aeschylus seems determined that our experience be a nuanced one. There is no room for rabid nationalism or jingoistic triumphalism, since he quietly but deliberately makes us understand the Persians and their losses. There is, of course, a little national pride to be had. At the point where we stopped last night, the Persian messenger is describing the outbreak of the day's conflict. The character is an eyewitness. We should also bear in mind that Aeschylus was himself a veteran of Marathon and presumably saw what happened on that fateful day 2,500 years ago. The next few lines, spoken in perfect Greek by our Persian messenger, are very conceivably verbatim calling to us from the past. Onward, sons of Greece, freedom for your fatherland, freedom for your children, for your wives, for all the shrines dedicated to the faith of your fathers, for the tombs of your ancestors. Today we fight for all of them. Avik nangregach, tenagi oriv, agaseregi vordir ruchish, Seragui vor lanavi, vormana, shinena vor neha duchish, agas uigena vor shinchish. Is that a son ille ata an krivesker ershu fri lahish? Every time I've seen this play performed in Greek, this little section has had a round of applause, 
Even this summer, in the unusual circumstances necessitated by the pandemic, it got a flutter of applause from the reduced audience in Epidaurus. Nothing like the nationalist cheers it might have had in the past. Perhaps this speech is itself a barometer of contemporary political pressure. This tiny quotation from the battleships is stirring, and it's as jingoistic as the play gets. Eight years after the battle, Aeschylus puts it on stage, within a frame of Persian, not Greek, experience. Maybe this is a very extreme example, but it's something akin to imagining Nazi experience on stage in Poland in the early 1950s. In a slightly wider context, it's worth noting that Greek tragedies really don't tend to take place in Athens. They're always in Thebes or Argos or Troy or somewhere else. They take place at considerable distance and frequently they put the less important members of society on stage. Women, slaves, foreigners, old men and even children. Athens used the representation of these others to reflect itself. Shakespeare did the same thing. He never set his plays in England unless they were at a historical remove, but behind all of his plays there's a sense of examination, as though the theatre is questioning the society that produces it. The same happens in Athens, and certainly is happening in our play. What makes it so extraordinary is that Aeschylus manages to elicit any sympathy for the Persians. One could, if one were obstinate enough, see only the glory of Greece written into this text. But what makes it a marvel for me is this other possibility. Even if he tempers it with a jolt of national pride, Aeschylus continues the messenger's speech with a depiction of what followed. We can feel good for the Greeks in that moment of valiant bravery, wherein they steel themselves to take on an armada that outnumbers them three to one. But the description that follows is quite brutal. Again, for the sake of the sound and the flow, I won't interrupt the whole speech. Things move quickly after the Greek battle cry. The ships begin to ram into each other, and the conflict escalates, until there are so many corpses that the sea is invisible beneath them. The messenger laments that a full catalogue of these disasters would be impossible, even if he took ten days to try to list them. Lashach baun, the voy long a rob cre ua a gunya bide ele. Hosnik artach gregach dunga bide a gustrishe a nuas, tasach umalan the long peshach. Gach captain a dig a ling a gunya and dinya ele. Er duish the hertilia more than orsa fershach suas bak. Ach leshen ita the covi dinga hilishele, so kail tani, ni rowder obelta er hacht e gowered at a hele. Agas the vulader a hele lena gobbana cre ua, agas the vrishader and fatter stravirta. Honig the lunga grega her temple at a gokoramach. Agas dada da da mulle, agas kasuk tonyach on the lung suas shias, agas ni fada na vert fauraka oil at a vadege, is he liamta le lunge, priste, agas le dine, madava. Vina costi, agas nishkedene a quid, har mweel le kurpine. Gluish gach lung lay, a gaelug on ord na agish. Gach lung ernoe da haulach na marbarach. Ach the Vulader, Agas the Smitter Shin, Le Madi, Rabe, Briste, Agas Le Blautracher, the Long Vrishe. We marble raw Eishk Shin.
Ik een oom, geen lien, gaat hij, agus loene en erge geleer, kut hij er hoog zoel, dorge nehiha en achtere gaan derig. Fiu taka hin de la agewalt chid, liene er liene. Ni eet hin inchent, umalan o hort er lien ar dabesti. Maar het is weten weg hinter je. Naar Maria Gouriev, een edit son, vaard, er een la avijn. The Queen is understandably distraught, horrified at the news of so many Persian deaths. She asks how this can have come about. The messenger describes how things began to go wrong in the waters of Salamis and how it dawned on Xerxes just how badly he was going to lose. Ta Ilan oskor Salamis, Ilan Biagkur, Dakar Lunga Achur er Ankada Aun, Arta Hanian Undia Pan, Egrinke Fanagosli. Herzerches Nefersha Idir Aun, Hunger Osada of Varodish and Forsa Nawadert Gregach, nor of Rishvi Alungana, is Ganenhadish Erin Ilan Hanslanaha, Agus Hanagumradaha, a hera or Hylan and a Fadige. Bavyog, a Higshe Kadavichandhar Lu Maran Lashena got Hugandia and Boas a half Fadige das Nagregig. Dashkadar Suas a Gutp, Fui Adam Kre Ua. The lame of their dal lunga agus a hemp leather and ilan galeer. Genach reve is ignafirsha guinea ha hasadish. Bulyog gummion, minik eerle clocha, catte eglavan and regach. Agus lag sayada o vowana eed, agus de maria geed. An son ege jede. The dinna gregig in a guinea lehe and rard kaha avain, agus wooliad. Agas yen bushterdacht er jäger bochten vägerdi när an de na baha unte. Da kyn zerches os ard när de chnikse med na hanachni. Mar vi sier han ege lärjärk ma er umalan an aj er fort ard os kyn madde. The strach she a robi on a shale, agas the luig she os ard, eg olagon ga fada bug bean. Agas hug ordu dus na kushehe, evig tehe inig and nanaman, gan ord, gan agad. In the final portion of the messenger's catalogue of woe, he describes how those who didn't die in the waters attempted to make their way back home. It's a desolate speech, in which it seems even the natural world is turning hostile. There's fire and ice and hunger and thirst. The Persians have attempted to yoke the seas, and they have failed, and now many of them die on the journey home. They have been thoroughly, totally defeated. Canarina Lung Avi Faka an kudelle dan vorse, has neither a fall vash idir bo ethia, kudachas bunta dan dart, agas edet nule feared ishke o finchi glenige. A hilladin elarag ar anaya, 
Yinamar Arshli chi hirt fo sha, Agustri Hollow Doddus and Uskudi ba velia, Art in Ishkian and Specius and Machade Lenada Ishki. Asson Agashin Stukaha le Hokaras, Hanamot Gama and Talib Achir, Agaska Kaharach Nasasaya. Forge art Vodamort Boss and Son le Hokaras, Agas le Tart. Marvian da rud aun garabach. Hanamar ga magnesia, agus gatiard vasadonia, ga ha an axius, agus di bugach bulba fuina yulkig, agus gashliev pangion idalov na nedinach. Dia, nahiha, the chrahig she yirig, a gemacht a gunin se sur. Sashli is goroig awa naefas trimon fana eid. Yet shoot nach rev teresh puin tora o horta na de ha gadisha. Dag leather arta e bajacha. Agus du leather shears os corn taluna agus na spere. And son nor de vi a arnaha, hone de ha kriachnaha egan adam. Hos neither e tras nu and lick eil facalte. Could you grin? A raw trasna ga tapig, sadder scap, gahan a deer, na grain a hat for night, hookamer na cosselin. Marcurkel, gal, na graine. Nor a hossishi, a sile sugar tell, and a rahana de yenshi, tinne, them gasan, hagas curt powl, trina lord. Hit na fear mark mark er de hele. Hagas vi an chancelo shoot ga de immigan de asta ga tapig. And drung a vee fakaha. Near Voran eat. Thide erishli eg teha, could he tilig etire duchish. Tarish gewalt treedent rashle, more hud dua. Isay shah an udo proin, a taig hahir ne bershach. A taig tnu lene ir oge inuna. Han and Nihe shah fear. Ach Vagan mentioned a mach quiva, tis na han roeti a dagger na deha er na pershig. With that, the messenger departs, and the queen and the chorus again have to decide what to do. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow night when we'll see what they do next. Persians, the podcast, is written and presented by me, Conor Hanrity, and of course our beautiful Irish translation is by Nuala Nihonal. Tonight you heard contributions from Edith Hall, Oliver Taplin and Lydia Conyordu, and the performance of The Messenger was by Katrina Nivarahu. Our signature music is by Mel Mercier, and the show is produced by Maura O'Keefe. The show is coming to you as part of Dublin Theatre Festival 2020, and we're supported by the Arts Council. Be sure to follow us on social media with the handle at PersiansDTF and you can find more information about the show at persiansthepodcast.com. Music.